0: I think learning how to manage larger teams by delegating is something that it's not very easy to do as like first-time founder or even first-time management. You can't do everything and you need like a very good second in command to really let them express themselves and let them go and figure things out on their own. And I think that's where the founder communities in, in Southeast Asia has also really evolved quite a bit, which is where, you know, I'm part of Southeast Asia founders and Founders coming together to talk about the problems that they face almost like a focus group that really helps them figure things out together. Because we, we, we don't know all the answers. That's natural for for any young and new founders. Yeah.
1: Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Poland is a private B2B liquidation marketplace. The startup connects sellers carrying excess inventory with bulk buyers across the world. The platform incorporates pricing algorithms, dashboard analytics, and sustainability metrics to find great liquidation outcomes. Hundreds of tons of usable products that would have been incinerated or gone to landfill is now used by happy consumers instead. Manufacturers get more revenue, buyers get cheaper inventory, and the world benefits. Learn more at www.polland.tech. Hey Kenneth, really excited to have you on the show. You are a third time founder, so definitely got a different mindset uh, and blood in you, Uh, and really excited to have you on The Brave Show. Could you introduce yourself real quick?
0: Yeah, thanks, Jeremy, for having me. Very excited to be here to be sharing and also learning from you throughout this conversation here today. So my name is Kenneth. You know, I'm on to my third startup now. Uh, a very crazy journey, roller coaster, as you would know as well. So yeah, so I've went through hardware in my first startup, and then second startup in finance, and then now in the health space. So I would say like trying different things. Generally, very excited to be
1: working on big problems and hopefully solving them in a meaningful way. So you know, I know that your first entrepreneurship experience was NovelSys where you're doing a Kickstarter. And that was actually one of my bucket list items back in the day. I was like, oh, I would love to do a Kickstarter. Uh, Was that your first entrepreneurship experience or were you entrepreneurial before that? How did that happen?
0: Yeah, so interestingly enough, I started that in the first year in in school, so in undergrad. And prior to that, when I was serving in the national service, I think one of the biggest things was this rise of mobile. So it's actually not that long ago, maybe around 10 years, one decade ago where mobile was really coming up and I was actually looking at the development platforms like Swift and all these things where people could start to code and build their own apps and I was very excited with the idea of being able to create a business with very low capex so naturally somehow or other I gravitated towards block 71 so today block 71 I think is in its second decade Uh, but when it first launched there were founders like purple purple founders were there Darius was working on this Darius from 99 Alain back then, he was working on an app called Billbound. So it was actually a bill-splitting app. And then there were carousel founders, shopback founders who were in their early days. And I actually went down there to try to mingle and, and network with them. And interestingly enough, they were saying that, why not join NOC, which is the NUS Overseas Colleges Program. So I was very enthralled by that and decided to take the leap of faith into this startup world by just registering my first company, not exactly sure what it's going to do. And then I started realizing that personal problems, right? The thing that we always learn is like, how do we solve our personal problems? And power banks were a personal problem of mine where there was a lot of wires and it's constantly like fumbling around with wires. So that's where the idea of a wireless charging device came about, which is through that experience. But long story short, got very inspired by local tech founders in the early days of mobile
1: and then wanted to do something in tech. I mean, you know, raising... You know, 87,000 USD on Kickstarter is no joke, okay? That was a lot of stuff that you did. Uh, so there you are, you've done that, and then you decide to go effectively build your next company, which was Seedly. So how did that transition happen, and why did you go about building Seedly?
0: Yeah, so the first one actually ended up really badly. So building a hardware company for a first-time founder is extremely doubly hard and very, very naive because there's a lot of mistakes that we made. With regards to contract manufacturing not understanding what is quantities and economies of scale so we essentially burned through that however much tens of thousands really quickly and kickstarter also charges a big fee right so net net we lost about 30 40 grand even after the kickstarter proceeds and the defect rate was really high so i was actually very dejected from my first startup but back then i was in year two in in school so i said why not take it on the chin? Go and learn from the best, right? And then where was the best it was in the valley. So I actually flew down there for three weeks. I, I call it a pilgrimage where just go down there and meet people, schedule meetings, go from one contact to another contact. Every day, just do three meetings in breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, and try to really understand what makes it take. And that's where I actually met my co-founder there, Teaming for Sidley, who was really into this idea of personal finance. Uh, because he actually won a hackathon there by building a web scraping tool. So then we saw the idea around finance, and and it was a a time when expense tracking apps were this thing that was really picking up around the world, where people would write down every single expense that they would spend. So be it chicken rice, or ramen, or maybe spending on a taxi. Back then, Grab was also starting, so people were definitely overspending on on such things. So we saw spending and personal finance as this big problem that was quickly rising so that's where we sort of transitioned into like okay let's do this thing and we were in our last year in school so we, we decided to take the plunge yeah
1: you mentioned earlier that you wanted to solve a problem that you understood right especially for novelists so how was that a problem that you empathize with, with CD? yeah
0: so the problem of personal finance actually plagues everyone it's just how big or how small so essentially back then when it, as a student We have very limited funds, right? So I was still drawing allowance from my family. So my my dad would give me an allowance and then I need to manage that allowance quite well. So managing a debit card was the first sort of foray into that. And I realized that it was quite difficult to manage expense tracking. And next, we realized that bank statements, like people had multiple banks, especially in developed countries like Singapore, where they needed help to manage all their accounts in one place. So that sort of segue into the next Uh, problem statement is that, how do we help you manage your money? Not just manage your expenses, but manage your money in the aggregated form sector. Yeah. So it's also very much working adults because working adults were our first target audience because
1: we understood working adults the best back then when we were graduating. Yeah. And what did you learn from building that, right? Because I think personal finance obviously is a problem for so many folks. I mean, recently we had a Brave episode discussing Work Salary Man, who's also discussing personal finance. And I love their comics as well. I think a very different angle of providing education on this front. So what did you learn from building, obviously, a startup tech and key learnings that you had? Yeah, so I think the biggest one also about
0: trust, because for us back then to start beyond the banks, like the big three, DBS, COBO, CBC, like it's very difficult for consumers to trust like a fintech company. And back then seven years ago, the fintechs in the space were Nets and EasyLink. So literally, these two were the the representations of tech in finance. But in just a a matter of five, six years, you have robo-advisors, you have folks like Work Salaryman, you have Mao Lion, you have like all these amazing content creators, but also people who are using tech to tackle finance problems in a very unique way. So I would say the biggest problem back then was trust because figuring out how to build that relationship and understanding with the end consumer to say that, hey, you know what? We are actually safe enough to allow you to manage your finances with, with us. Even though it's aggregated, it's read only, there's no right, right? But consumers would also be very wary of like how you're storing my data, how, how you're going to use my data, uh, things like that.
1: I mean, what's interesting obviously is that at this point of time, you've been a founder, all right, once. And then now you're founder again. And then you're also, this time, really becoming a CEO, right? Because it needs your team, and your scale. So kind of like, what was that? And you're also now a working professional, right? So what were some changes you noticed about yourself back then from a personal and professional angle? Yeah, I think at, at scale, we were at about 30 people in Sidley.
0: So about half product engineering and the other half would be like marketing and BD. Uh, and at a point in time... I think learning how to manage larger teams by delegating is something that it's not very easy to do as like first-time founder or even first-time management, where you try to do everything and then you start to realize that, hey, you can't do everything and you need like a very good second in command to really let them express themselves and let them go and figure things out on their own and just be that guiding guiding light. And I think that's where the founder communities in, in Southeast Asia has also really evolved quite a bit, which is where I'm part of Southeast Asia Founders and founders coming together to talk about the problems that they face almost like a focus group, cell uh, group, right? That really helps them figure things out together. Because we, we, we don't know all the answers. That's natural for, for any young uh, and new
1: founders. Yeah. And at that point of time, are there any myths or misconceptions about the finance space? that you understood better after kind of building out so much in it?
0: Yeah, personal finance, uh, the, the thing, the, the interesting thing is that though it's personal, like it's in the word personal finance, you start to realize that it's actually quite similar for many people. Like everyone would go through like similar life stages, um, at least in the Singapore and Southeast Asian context, like the big expenses will always be your wedding, your house, your car, your first kid. And you start realizing that these life stages are quite standardized across different people. So initially, we were like, okay, how are we going to personalize it for different audiences? But then we realized that, hey, we can actually do it in broad strokes to look at life stages. I think that was the biggest one because you realize that the the tools and the products that you'll be sort of exposed to at different points in time would be exactly the same thing. A home loan, a mortgage, right? Do you consider your CPF loan? your hdb loan or do you go with a bank uh, your kids education do you send them to a private preschool or do you send them to like a public preschool it's always very very
1: similar kind of life stage so you can sort of group them up accordingly yeah i'm definitely a consumer of those articles about wedding and hong pao rates and child stuff and all that stuff And what's interesting, of course, is that you obviously went through two motherships essentially, right? Once with ShopBack and once with Hyphen Group. So could you share a little bit more about that journey? Yeah. So so the first
0: one was interesting. So we raised funding from East Ventures. So East Ventures was like the common investor between like ShopBack and us back then. And the cool thing was that Wilson, shout out to him, right? Like he actually invested in us, even though we were still students and... I think for him to take that step to write that first 100K check, right? So it was very, there was a lot of hope that we would sort of amount to something. And when we were raising a second seed round, we were sort of looking to raise a a subsequent 250, 300K. Uh, And then we got to know of Shopback because my co-founder was the first software engineer in Shopback. So Shopback shared that they wanted to go after finance in a specific way and shared with us their vision, Henry and Joelle seemed like great guys we could learn from and, and really work with, and, and they really are, right? Uh, so we decided we to take the plunge. Back then, we only had like five, six people, and then we just moved our whole team into shopback. We did a complete share swap, so we were sort of in the early founding team within the whole setup. And we grew, right? The next two years, we actually grew from there quite aggressively, especially in terms of like the reach that we had in Singapore.
1: Yeah. What advice would you give for people going through that kind of like acquisition slash merger slash, you know, kind of like merging? I think the biggest one is to not be afraid to ask for help. So I think back then we were like,
0: okay, we're going through this. We can't let anyone know. But the thing is now I would say the ecosystem is more mature. So there would have been more founders who had went through similar situations. So you can actually reach out to us. Yeah, so I know back then the only person I really spoke to I think was Darius. So Darius had went through a few acquisitions. So I got to know him through the NUS network and he was kind enough to spend a morning, I remember, on along Chinatown. He had his favorite soya sauce, chicken, rice. He sat me down and he asked me why did I want to do this? What was my intentions? What's my timeline? So that was exciting. Royston as well. I think he just went through the Zopim one back then. Uh, so... Folks like that, don't be afraid to just go around and ask people. And you might think of it like it's very unique to you, but you also realize that things are actually actually not that unique after all, right? There are always commonalities and similarities around different views in terms of the psyche, in terms of the way that things are structured as well.
1: Well, I love the soy sauce chicken dynamic, but also the conversation there. You said something true, right? Which is, I think you're scared and you don't talk about it, right? Versus now that you look back on it, you feel like ecosystem all but mature, so you got to talk about it. So I think theoretically people know that you should talk about it, but for you yourself, what was the fear there? Was it because you're scared that people would compete with you or translate you know? I think the fear that
0: most founders would have is like information, right? like keep things closed.: Yeah, I, I remember this interesting story where. In the early days of startup learning, you probably experienced this as well. People were like, I can't send you a pitch deck unless we have an NDA, right? That kind of stuff. And even like, let's say Kickstarter, right? Kickstarter, the moment we listed it live and the moment there was traction, the next day we saw it on, on a Chinese e-commerce site. So it's, exa- it's like things like that. It used to be like, okay, you need to have IP laws. You need to be very worried about contractual stuff. You never know how your information is going to be used. But I think nowadays... Founders need to understand that things need to move fast. So you need to move, you learn faster. So don't be afraid to share, to really get information to
1: make the next step. Yeah. And what was your own personal life at that point of time, right? Because you're like running around like crazy, or there's 30 people. I'm just kind of curious, what was your personal life at that point of time?
0: Yeah, it's not easy. Even though we, we sort of had 30 people, I was directly managing around half of them because the other half, my co-founder was looking after the product and engineering. But I think always trying to get everyone aligned is never easy. So things like all heads, things like stand-ups, like how do you do it in an efficient way? Uh, so that's work-life. Personally, I was, I was getting married. So financially, things like that. Practice what, what we preach, right? Like what credit cards to use? How do you budget accordingly? On bar rates? Where do you get the Little hacks of, of finance hacks around making these life decisions. I think all those things was was running in parallel, and then now personally going to have my first son soon. So I think those things again is it's like life runs parallel to startup. Yeah, even though startup usually is running at a lot faster pace. Yeah.
1: And you know what's interesting is that you take all of this and then you wrap things up, and then you take some time out. I'm just kind of curious. Obviously, we know that you're now off to build your third company, but I'm just kind of curious, like, obviously, Seedly, how was how that gap when you wrap things up? What was your emotions around wrapping things up? And what was your plan for that break? Yeah. yeah, it was actually a very unique point in time. and It's something that I appeal to founders as
0: well, going through exits, right? To really have a timeline of, like, how ultimately they would transition off, right? Because ultimately... It's great to build things. It's also great to sort of, it's a skill to actually hand it over to a team that you trust. So we're grateful to have like a team that we trust, management that can work well with, with them. So our second company that we left to was Hyphen Group. Back then it was called Comparagia Group. So Hyphen Group, very interesting company in the finance space. After the the two-year period, we knew that we wanted to move on. So I was very cognizant that looking out for a successor, making sure that him or her is aware of how to run the ship continually. So that was planned. And then communicating that early on is important as well. So it doesn't come too much as a shock. And personally, having that six months break, looking for ideas, looking for problems to solve. Uh, and personally, you know, I went for a meditation retreat. I went to travel for a bit as well. Just nice COVID
1: ended last year. Yeah. Two, one. Wow, uh, meditation retreat. I've got to ask, which one is it?
0: Yeah, so I went for the one called Vipassana.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Jack
0: Dorsey has done it, right? And many other tech founders, especially in Singapore. I won't name names, but there are a lot of founders, VCs who also have done uh, things like that. Because you get 10 days to yourself. You don't talk to anyone. You eat vegetarian food.
1: Yeah, so that's good. I recommend it. Uh, I've done it twice. Once with my first co-founder, with my wife. First one, I was excited to go for. Second one, I, I went there to accompany my wife and I was like soft dreading it. <laughs> <laughs> did you do a longer one or was it just the same, the 10 day? Both I did 10 days, yeah. Because it was the first time for my wife, right? The second time around. So. Yeah. yeah. Would you well, recommend doing it twice or? Would I recommend doing it twice? Frankly, I accompanied my wife for the second one. And so I didn't feel, I think I, was, I would have been happy to do like a shorter one for the second one day. Okay. But because I knew I was going to 10 days and I wasn't really in that mind space to do so. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was more chill <laughs> in finding myself on the second time around. But I think the first one was really great. I really rec- enjoyed it. And it was a very tough period for me personally. I mean, I, I went there the first time with my co-founder and we were best friends and still best mm. friends. Uh, but, you know, we had been talking to each other on every day for like five years, right? Pretty much actually overlapping your time as a founder. And so, you know, I think it was just weird to not talk to each other for ten days, as well as to have a lot of phantom hallucinations of my devices vibrating as well. So I would meditate, and then I'll feel my phone vibrate, even though I have no phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a house. classic one. Yeah, emails, yeah. right?
0: Like, <laughs> emails and
1: everything. Yeah, I'll be yeah. meditating, and I can I can feel an email coming in. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have a problem. <laughs> 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 So, I think obviously a lot of founders, obviously, some are successful, some exit, some obviously have struggle. I think many of them ask the question, right? It's like, how do you structure that time, right? After that, right? Is it, it could be one month, it can be three months. I know yours was a bit longer. So, how would you recommend folks think about that sabbatical or timeout?
0: I think there really isn't like a fixed time frame, but I would say do what works for you. So I met another one, another founder who is also a fellow investee company in the same VC. He's Pete from Drinkmore. So he used to have started this company called Pi that Google bought. And then he was saying six months is too short. So he took a 12 months break after he left officially Google. And he shared that, you know, it's the best 12 months of his life where he got to learn woodworking skills. So he went to build like a little shed in his home. Yeah. So things like that, I guess you can determine like what you want to learn, what you want to do to sort of re-understand and and find yourself again. Yeah. Find out what you're interested about. Yeah.
1: I mean, you did seed leaf over six years, right? So like, When you stopped seedly, was there anything left about yourself? I mean, you know, like, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's a good point, right? Because most founders and myself included, like, everything on my social media, everything on my LinkedIn was about my company. Uh, The identity is so, like, tied to that. So I think taking that six months to really decompress and just not even think about it was a good time to detach from what I was, like, so, so
1: wholeheartedly, like, focused on. Yeah. I'm curious about what you learned about six months. I'll share one. Uh, uh, When I did my first company, my sabbatical was about two months because after that, I went to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Los Angeles to Yosemite. One month. My key learning was that for some reason, I had this crazy belief that my relationship wasn't going to work with my then-girlfriend, my now-wife. And a big part of it was that my first uh, girlfriend in... Georgia College, she had passed away. And so I was very dealing with a lot of like grief and trauma from that, but it was showing up primarily in a relationship. So I was very pessimistic about my relationship. And then after that, I spent two months out and I was like, okay, you know, like I don't need to break up with her now. (laughs) Maybe down the road we'll do that, but there's no reason to do so. Right. So I think that two months actually gave me the space because I was using work to fill up all my hours and not think about it. But with two months, of no work, I had to think about it and I thought about it. And I said, okay, I'll continue dating this lady, right? Who's now the mother of my kids, right? So that was two months. So I'm so curious, what learnings did you have during those six months? Yeah.
0: Yeah. In fact,
1: the biggest one was uh, during Vipassana, you know, you sort of
0: think, understand that things are not permanent, right? So you learn about the idea of impermanence and we come to this world with nothing and then leave the world with nothing. So when I was like taking that time to decompress, I kind of realized also, like personal finance, everything that we've been teaching up to that point, right, was about how do you get more, like 100,000 by 30, right? I'm sure the work men people talk about that. You get 200,000 by 30, you know, by 40, how do you be a $1 million net worth by 65? You know, things like that from mainstream finance media. But you also realize that it's not just about the money, but it's about what you do, right? What experiences that you want to experience in your time here on this, on this planet. And it led me down a very unique path because I was actually thinking of not doing startups anymore. And it, consciously, right, I, I know that this path is going to be so difficult again, like learning things from scratch, learning a new industry. So I was actually making that very difficult choice to like figure out what was the way of life I want to design, and then how do I design that life going forward. So it sort of led me down that path where, okay, I like health because, you know, I was training for an Ironman. So I was doing that also in that six months break, learning things about diet, learning things about nutrition, sleep, and sort of how do I sort of make that into a startup where we can help even more people. So the real wealth is health, right? That's always the same. So that sort of led me down that path and sort of also where we are working on, which is in, in the space of longevity and health tech.
1: Great transition to what you're building today. Really exciting you're building in a longevity space, which is really about health span, about you know, aging, well, pushing back, that back as much as possible and aging well as well. So really excited for you to share a little bit more about how you discovered this problem, that this is something you want to not only be interested in personally, but also build.
0: Yeah. So I think the biggest trigger was when we were looking for problems to solve, right? Like what are big enough problems that will withstand the test of time? And uh, we were speaking to one investor who basically shared a lot about this space. And I think what was interesting, initially, I was a bit daunted by it because it seemed like it's going to be very complicated. I have zero experience in the health space. Um, but I, I sort of realized that there's 8 billion people in this world who, who are aging. And that's a huge market. And when you think about it, everyone dies one day. So it's sort of related back to what I learned during that period so how do we sort of make sure that the idea of health spend, which is the years free from disease, right? So free from cancer, free from neurodegenerative problems like Alzheimer's, dementia. How do we sort of push that out so that by the time you get it, you are actually nearer to when you actually leave this earth, right? So I thought that was a very fascinating kind of insight. But how do you use tech to enable that? So areas like diagnostics, how do we combine your blood bio data? How do we combine your wearable data on your Apple watch, on your Google health, on your Garmin, on your aura rings? And how do we sort of synthesize all of that? We use AI and then we sort of personalize recommendations for you so that you know exactly what you need to be doing to sort of extend your health span. Yeah,
1: yeah I definitely understand that. I was just uh, plugged in my own life expectancy calculator and they gave me a certain number. And then they were like, you should drink one glass of alcohol to give yourself two more years of life. And I was like, what? I mean, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't drink. And so I was like, what? I need to drink one glass. And then I had to go through this rabbit hole of like reading research papers to be like, and there's like five research papers that say drink one glass of wine a day equals great. And then there's a whole bunch of research papers that just came out over the past two years to be like, actually, we didn't do our math right. And therefore is a confounding factor, et cetera. So I'm just like, now I'm like, okay, it's like so confusing. I don't know what the answer is. I'll just not change my routines. Uh, yeah, look,
0: there's an element of mental mental health as well, right? So I think if you're, if you're doing it in the context of socializing with, with peers, with friends, and with family, I think that's fine. But I think moderation is key. You know, the idea of moderation, how do you use triggers to remind you to not do certain habits and, and sort of to build better health habits? So those areas... Uh, areas that we think that uh, tech can come in uh, which is also why we feel like uh, we have an exciting team with with the right skill sets to try to tackle this problem
1: yeah i think what's interesting here is that it also does tie into your previous founder experience even though it's a new vertical right because there's a lot of education obviously actually I, I felt like there's an actually interesting parallel because like you said the hidden core of seedly is more right more mm-hmm. money lifestyle more experiences, right? Everyone dies one day, so everybody wants more life, right? Yeah, so, so that shit is an interesting core there, actually. Uh,
0: yeah, no, that's a great, uh, that's a great parallel. In, in fact, I think the, the question to ask is like, why do you want more life? Like, what have you not done? But at the same time, while we are, while we are sort of debating around this, right? Life expectancy has been showing to grow, like retirement age are being pushed back further mm-hmm. and further across every continent, across every demographic, you can see wars, rather like riots spreading out in the European regions because pension ages are being pushed back further. In Singapore as well, retirement ages are being pushed back further. So there's a whole different dynamic of like aging societies and aging populations that I think is going to be this tsunami that's going to hit us like really, really soon. Yeah. Why do you want more life? That's a great question. I think it's to do more, right? So hopefully figuring things out, more experiences, traveling, working somewhere else. Because I've never worked anywhere else other than Singapore. So how do we take this idea? Maybe we can go somewhere else to expand. So yeah, I think there's, there's more to be done. Yeah. Personally,
1: mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course, personally, right? Yeah. yeah, it does make me think. Yeah. You know, there's this uh, interesting
0: survey that was done. So when you ask people... There was this survey ran by Peter Atiyah, who is a very famous longevity doctor in the, in the US, right? How many, how many people want to live a longer life? And most of the room would normally say they wouldn't be interested. But the moment you ask them, would you want to see your great-grandchildren? Would you want to go for a, a game of football or a game of, of soccer with them? And then most people would say yes, right? Again, depending on your the, the demographic. So it's about phrasing it as experiences that you will experience in a later stage of life, not just about the
1: quantity, right? Yeah. No, it's a really good point, right? And not an easy conversation to have. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think people want to have more experiences, right? I mean, you made me think, like, my, I mean, the awkward reality is, like, I have two daughters now, right? And they're so cute, and I love them a lot. And I'm kind of terrified about them dying, <laughs> and I also got terrified about myself dying too early because I watched like this YouTube video by our grandfather's story, and he talks about this poor widow, and her husband died from cancer, right, early, and so she got stressed and angry, and she was a bad mom, and then it took her years to realize herself, and her three kids were like comforting her, and they're all happy now as a family. And I was just watching that video and I cried and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't want to like die and like cause that pain in my family. Right. And then I remember like the next day I was like, in a grab. Right. And then I put on a seatbelt for the first time because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just like, I mean, I was like, yeah, like you now I have a kid now. I have two kids. Right. Yeah. Not because I don't want to wear a seatbelt like a loser. And by the way, I use a bicycle without a helmet, right? So, wow. Because, okay. yeah, because, you know, I don't want to bike yeah. like a loser, right? You know, <laughs> I'm a winner <laughs> who doesn't bike with a helmet. I'm cool, right? Who needs a heavy helmet with lights and stuff like that? And then-
0: Actually, it's a great point. Um, so we, we reference a lot to the learnings of what's happening in the West when it comes to preventative health. And you, you roughly know what will kill you. So <laughs> accidents are one big one. So things like getting into car accidents, like, Clean accidents, but that's one type of, of, of killer. Another one would be like things like cancer. Cancer, you've got neurodegenerative problems, you have heart disease, you have type 1, type 2 diabetes. So it's like a handful of things you sort of understand what will kill you. And then sort of working backwards, like how do you sort of look for the precursors of those things and sort of push it back further. So things like wearing a seatbelt, wearing a helmet, you know, those are exact analogies you would take for other aspects of your health be it
1: your cholesterol levels, be it your sugar levels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now the government is into... I mean, longevity is healthcare, right? Healthcare is longevity, right? And so, mandating seat, mandating helmets is... You're becoming a dad soon. How do you... Yes. The, how is that changing your view on longevity and so, so far? I'm so curious. How are you feeling? Um, um, right now, I don't. I don't feel... A big thing until, you know, I see the scans
0: and then hopefully everything is well, it comes out well. But I, I think, like mentally, like getting ready for that next phase, going back to what we learned in the life stages, right? I think this life stage will really sort of open up in terms of understanding life and like, life and death because my, my dad passed away at 56. So he passed away really young as well, due to brain cancer. So I, I sort of see that parallel where, you know, you come and then you leave this earth So what do you do here during your time makes a lot of sense. So maybe I'll be more motivated to to create more impact quicker. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah.
1: I mean, the truth of the matter is everybody's interested, right? So uh, it's just that nobody really believes it, right? You know, in the sense that, you know, everybody has had a personal loss, right? Family members, loved ones, friends, acquaintances, classmates, and colleagues. Like you said, everyone dies one day and... In the meantime, we just ignore it and keep working. Like you know, like there's no tomorrow, right? You know, it's just like yeah, yeah. So I think so I think everyone's quite interested silently, but I think there's also so much like quackery and so much like fear, and you know, everyone's like it's like people can't even get their insurance stuff together yeah. let alone. Their will and testament. Yeah. We already know that stopping smoking and wearing a seatbelt and wearing a helmet are all super important, and people don't do them anyway. So how do you think about that? I mean, how do you think about crossing that education threshold from your perspective?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. So you brought up insurance, which is the direct parallel to this space that we are playing in. Because by doing certain things, you are buying insurance for something that you are afraid will happen. It's a big hurdle to cross for us and for many wellness companies, because ultimately we are preaching a future to you that otherwise would have happened almost as if like in the multiverse, right? So it's sort of sort of going into that, that, that part of the brain that makes you think more, not just on a shallow level, but on a deeper level where in the future, you have 10 more years, 20 more years, right? What, what does that look like for you? How do you sort of relate the experiences back? It's not just about the number, but it's about lifting your your great great-grandchildren up. You know, you can carry them up. So those are things like walking up the stairs, walking down the stairs, being able to carry your groceries home. So those are very visual sort of examples that we like to remind our
1: clients and our audiences. Yeah. And on that personal note, could you share a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest thing was
0: actually attempting the Ironman in six months. So that was actually last year where I woke up and I said like, I'm going to challenge myself, not only mentally through like a 10-day silent retreat, but challenge myself physically. And initially the thought process was, I can do this, right? Just mind over matter. Uh, but I started to realize that there's a lot more that was involved, right? Your diet and nutrition, your exercise, keeping up the regime, extreme motivation, like to just do something and just get it off the bucket list. So like on hindsight now, I actually see like a lot of um, death rates when it comes to, extreme endurance like sports for people who are not full-time athletes so i thought that was like something on hindsight it was seemed quite foolish but i thought there was something interesting in in my life so far yeah
1: what is one piece of advice that you'll give first year out in the professional workforce self you know you already started cd at that point of time what advice would you give yourself back then i
0: think as with as with most pieces of advice is like finding out what works for you and not being so worried about what people think, I think that's huge, especially in this day and age where like social media is this thing, everyone is on, right? So the way that you're represented, the things that you say, the things that you do, like just feels like there's a lot of people who care about you, but actually everyone is like dealing with their own shit, right? So you have to sort of figure out your own things, uh, you're figuring out your own problems, figure out what path works for you and at the end of the day, no one cares. Like you don't have to be
1: so concerned about what people think, in my view.
0: yeah.
1: Thank you so much. I'd love to summarize the three big themes I got from this conversation. And the first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing, I think, about your professional journey across your first Kickstarter project and obviously the failure from your perspective and what you took away to build Seedly and how you grew it out as both a founder and CEO to eventually exiting and learning about what that process was like. So thank you for sharing all of that. The second that I really enjoyed was actually, I think, your set of experiences as a three times founder. So your reflections about building for your own problem and being very intentional about that search was really interesting and how you also structured your sabbaticals or transition times. Uh, in a way, it gave you space and also allowed you the opportunity to consult other people, but also gave you space to find yourself. So we talked about Vipassana and what you took away from there and... How you took away the inside that everyone dies one day, right? So I thought it was an interesting phrase. I would say I've got to remember that everyone dies one day. Probably not the most popular T-shirt. I would say. <laughs> you're, <laughs> Unless Yolo, you're very Yolo. cool, yeah. you only yeah. live once. That's that's yes. that's. That's, I think the, that's a cool way of saying it. Everyone dies yeah. one day is like the, the, the down version of that, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like two
0: sides of the same coin, right? right
1: so. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and lastly, I, I really enjoyed actually this conversation about mortality, actually. I love that question. you said, why do you want more life? Right? And I think framing it up in a perspective, not just in terms of years, but also in terms of experiences and opportunities, I think we got to discuss this in the context of life stages in terms of parenthood and marriage and different life stages but also, I think, discuss, I think, a little bit more of the personal angle for both you and I. We also got to, I think, talk about why you're deciding to not just be a user of longevity, but also building a longevity startup. Uh, So I thought it was really interesting to hear you intend to educate some of the parallels between this and personal finance insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, On that note, could you share folks who are interested in living longer and spending more time with their kids or loved ones? Where can they go and find you kind of? Yeah, so they can find us on mitohealth.com. We are starting all beta, so
0: like basically trying to get more clients to figure out this side of their life that otherwise they would have underlooked at. So yeah, very happy to, to serve you, um, share with you the, the content that we have to hopefully help you live better and, and feel feel better. Yeah.
1: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.